How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. to This Week in, in Accountable Care on the Blog Talk Radio and Affiliate Networks. This episode is brought to you by National ACO, a physician-led, market-leading, next-generation accountable care organization charting the future in value-based healthcare. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show. And in the virtual studio today are my colleagues, Dr. Andre Berger, Chief Executive Officer and Dr. Alex Foxman, President and Chief Medical Officer of National ACO. We have additional guests who will be joining us on the broadcast, and we will get to them shortly. So first up, let me welcome Drs. Andre Berger and Alex Foxman to the broadcast. Welcome, gentlemen. Great to be on. So uh, we're uh, broadcasting today from San Diego at the Bio International Conference here. Busy uh, a couple days down here at the... San Diego Convention Center. So we are going to tell a tale today about growth and some of the demands of growth associated with physician organizations that are charting the future in value-based healthcare, alternative payment models, and specifically the broadening of the payment program into the all-inclusive population health based payments. So we are going to discuss what some of those needs are in terms of growth and how they are accommodated and and some of the options now facing um, the organization as they look at their growth and how this impacts their bottom line in terms of uh, capital structure and so forth. So uh, Dr. Berger, I'm going to hand it over to you and uh, let you kind of uh, weave the general story here and your colleague can uh, certainly chime in and offer context and perspective, and we'll take it from there. Okay, well, thanks so much, Greg. Uh, great uh, great to be on. Um, growth is um, a wonderful thing, but it's also a, a challenging thing. So when we started off in 2012, um, putting together National ACO, and then beginning in our first performance year as a Medicare shared savings program, uh, organization, um, we actually um, were very fortunate because at that time we were one of only two in California and 35 in the country that were awarded uh, and given an advanced payment model, uh, which means that basically the Center for Medicare and Medicaid uh, services did give us an advance, uh, you know, a significant amount of money that really helped us kind of get into the game without going to physicians 
and asking them to cut checks. Uh, I keep telling the story that you know if I would get in a room in front of you know 100 physicians and and 19 uh, in 2012 and asked them to each uh, sign a check uh, for the privilege of you know participating in an MSSP. Uh, by the time I blinked, the room would have been empty. So. Uh, fortunately, we didn't, I didn't have to have that uh, happen, and uh, and we were fortunate. And we're also fortunate because every year uh, we were managed. We managed to save money, and most of the time we were able to share those savings with our physicians. And we've been one of the more successful organizations. Um, and we've graduated because of that success, and because of the growth that we've had, we've graduated from the Medicare Shared Savings Program. Uh, which, in our situation, was a uh, was a track one non-risk bearing relationship to the next generation ACO model uh, as an advanced alternative payment model organization, uh, assuming uh, risk, and that's really changed the ball game it, because it has supported really a credibly accelerated growth trajectory. Uh, which is very exciting, but also has uh, increased the needs for um, infrastructure, scale, scaling up uh, the ladder to support this uh, tremendous growth, and also because of the risk related to this enterprise, um, imposes an additional requirement for financing performance bonds, uh, such as surety bonds or other performance mechanisms, um, you know, that uh, increased the, the requirements. So I think growth is wonderful and, and we're very excited about this opportunity and success. But we're also understanding that as a, not a deep pocket institutional organization, but as a physician-led, physician-driven, uh, you know, physician-organized or, uh, company, um, that we have to be creative. We have to be kind of um, a little bit different in terms of our approach to funding the capital needs to sustain and continue this this growth, and with that, I'm going to, um, you know, maybe have um, my co-founder, my good friend, and uh, our president and chief medical officer, Dr. Foster. Maybe he can also weigh in and and continue to comment, uh, piggyback off my remarks. There, there is a lot of. Uh, of of difficulty in growing an organization that is physician-owned and, and, and managed. If you could imagine, as, as uh, Dr. Berger alluded, uh, it is not easy uh, for primary care physicians especially, who are not very well reimbursed in the healthcare system, to invest in a new revolutionary type of uh, model, such as uh, uh, value-based care models uh, being the MSSP and moving into the next-gen ACO model. In fact, many studies have shown that it takes well over a million dollars to Put in place the operational foundation to to operate a, a an ACO would be successful. So we were very uh, honored, and and we really uh, believe that a CMS should probably extend the opportunity of advanced payment models, uh, advanced payment mechanisms, uh, to um, uh, to others. Um, what one of the means of of uh, getting uh, investment is going out to our own. ACO positions and allowing them to participate more than just being a, a position participant, but actually participate in the uh, opportunity to be part of the organization. And I wanted to, to maybe throw this back to either 
uh, Andre, Dr. Berger, or, or others that are with us, uh, Alex Fair or Bruce Kaufman, and maybe they could better explain one of the mechanisms that we're using, which is um, the private placement memorandum type of opportunity for investors. So this is Alex Fair from MedStarter. Uh, thanks for inviting me into the, the conversation tonight, guys. Um, so, uh, Dr. Foxman, Dr. Berger, it's been great working with you on, on this uh, fundraising opportunity. So, in terms of preparing all of the documents for uh, a online and offline uh, fundraising activity, like uh, like you like we're working on with you. Um, it, you know, as you know, it's it's getting the story right and and making sure the offering is proper and and having all the documentation uh, to be uh, FINRA SEC approved and also to to balance that with with what you're doing with the online element. So, you know, I run MedStarter.com and on MedStarter right now you can actually find the National ACO opportunity. But uh, there are limitations to what you can talk about online. So the private placement memorandum, for example, which is, for those that don't know, it's a rather long, complicated document that talks about the actual offering and what the investors are getting and talks about the risks and it has lots of language that, uh, that, that is SEC compliant. So while MedStarter is not a broker-dealer, we do work with uh, with uh, a broker-dealer named Young American Capital, from whom Bruce Kaufman, our partner, um, hails. So, so Bruce and his team of uh, certified FINRA uh, uh, accredited uh, uh, broker-dealers uh, under the under the the auspices of Young American Capital. Uh, they have a team that goes through all of the uh, documents, does uh, very diligent due diligence, uh, flies out, flew out to California and interviewed everybody and made sure that the finances are in order and that the structure of the company makes sense. And they put this all down into the documentation. And then, unfortunately, when you load it on MedStarter, if you're not an accredited investor, you can't actually get to that. Um, because you know there are rules about who can actually invest in these offerings and how public you can make them. So in compliance with the SEC, we, we put that behind a wall, a secure wall, and ask everyone to self-certify before they can even access those documents. Um, so if you go to medstarter.com front slash NACO, you'll uh, see lots of great information about the company. You can get interested, but you can't learn anything about the terms of of the offering. The private placement man memorandum is behind that firewall, behind that uh, accreditation wall. And then if you want to talk to anybody about it, it's always going to lead you back to either uh, Drs. Berger or Foxman or their authorized representatives who are very familiar with all the regulations. So this is all by way of saying uh, you have to do this in a way that's very careful, very compliant. And that's what a PPM uh, is all about. So, so thank you. So, um, Dr. Berger again. So, so Alex, thanks for that. Um, so just to put it in a little bit of more context, uh, in terms of um, you know, the opportunity for for, for growth uh, combined with their need for capital. So, this is one mechanism. It doesn't mean that this is the only mechanism. It doesn't mean that this is necessarily uh, the answer, but it's one answer. And so I want to put it in context in terms of, okay, so there's 
and we're talking about not just national ACO. There, there's a, there's potentially a lot of other organizations that may kind of be in a similar position. Who are so, Alex? If if you um, you know, because this is this is the marketplace that you kind of live and, and breathe in. If you if you're an organization such as ours, and 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 you need to to, to fund your growth. And our growth has been incredible. I mean, we started in Southern California on 2012, the MSSB, which is 5,600 tribute beneficiaries and 21, um, you know, tax ID number practices. And, uh, you know, and we're on a trajectory um, to start 2018 with uh, being in uh, six states. And um, and have well in excess of you know forty to fifty thousand attribute beneficiaries. So obviously, uh, you know, it's a huge growth trajectory. And um, and 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 so, you know, this does require a lot of a lot of um, thought about choices you have in in how you get the money and what it, what are the I would say what are the pitfalls and what are the what are the what do you have to look for in terms of what are you going to give up, um, you know, compared to what are you going to get? So maybe I, I, because of your experience here, maybe I would have you kind of help us and help the audience understand a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and, you know, we've seen everything. We've seen hundreds of companies come through the platform. I, I don't know if you, you know this, Dr. Berger, but Midstar grew out of a, of a, a meetup group in New York. Um, and so in that meetup group, we saw ZomDoc show up. We saw Able to show up. We saw Kerosene show up. Um, and when they were tiny little companies, just people starting out. And what we saw was if they got a little bit of traction with a few doctors or a bunch of patients, um, people who actually care deeply but don't usually have any say in what gets funded. Now, this is back in 2008. Uh, we saw that that would then lead to greater growth, which then would lead to uh, partners stepping in and investors and things like that. So there's this, what do you call a generative cycle, lots of little things leading to bigger things. And, and so I believe you know, Greg and I uh, put uh, 27 companies on stage in 2012, if you recall, Greg, at Healthcare Revolution in San Francisco, including Sonny Vu with his Misfit Wearables before he had any customers when he was just talking about Fred Trotter before DocGraph and CareSync became popular. And what they did was they got people's eyes to light up and say, yes, we're interested in this idea. And that, to me, was a, a moment of epiphany where you could see that once these companies were attracting that kind of attention, that they were going to move on to the next thing. Now, if you actually look and analyze those companies over the next couple of years, you can see that they then raised funds. And this is a sea change, because if you look at the, the graph of, of who's investing in healthcare, like who decides where all the money is going to go, um, something like 56% comes from pharma, uh, 30% comes from the government, uh, you know, another 18% or so comes from investors. And then, like, a tiny, tiny point oh one percent or so comes from actual public uh, patients, doctors, things like that. So, But on the other hand, even though all the money is coming from these other sources, the, the large venture funds in the space, it's not, uh, it's not informed 
by the patient and the physician perspective. That's why I love the NACO story because it was physicians banding together, independent physicians saying, we're going to change something about how our practice works. We're going to give the, uh, ourselves a way that we can actually improve care for patients, you know, take the hot spot or approach and lots of other, you know, great ideas, which I know Dr. Carnes can talk about um, a lot. Um, and, and let's, you know, let's make a better care paradigm for patients and save the government money and make practice better for me as a doctor because, you know, as a doctor, I didn't come to medicine to do paperwork. I came to medicine to make people healthy. I didn't really want to do sick care. I really wanted to do well care, right? So, so to me, that is the value proposition for an investor, right? That you're making patients happy, you're making doctors happy, and, um, and then if you can get that validation, last I checked, you guys had, what, 290 positions and 22,000 uh, enrollees, uh, and, and that was that's old data, so I know that it did. And the fact that you guys are growing, doubling every year or so, um, to me means you're making a lot of people happy, and more importantly, you save the government, what, $14 million in their first couple of years? That's incredible, right? So you're satisfying the triple aim. So, but then again, if you go out to the market and say, I want to raise money for this, the traditional uh, investors, uh, you'd still have to do your typical 37 meetings in order to get, you know, 36 and a half no's, right? So one of the things we're excited about is that if you can make that interest visible online uh, and then prove to the world that you are actually doing these things that the, that the, the world uh, that, that investors would appreciate that you can have a, a you know a profit a profitable company and then raise money next if you make everybody happy along the way but along the way we've seen everything else happen we've seen companies that that uh, got bought had their IP taken and then shut down um, we've seen you know companies sky high uh, you know $35 a share on public markets go down to pink sheets when a scandal hits, I mean, all sorts of things can happen to startups, uh, acquisitions um, and uh, IP fights, things like that. And just, but if you make your customers happy and then you present that to potential investors, hey, we've got 22,000 patients uh, who are using, who are part of this network. And I think it's a really compelling story for investors. And if you look at companies that have gone through the MedStarter systems or our events and have raised money by making patients and customers happy, they're uh, about 23 times more likely than other companies to get additional funding and to go on to do bigger, better things uh, in the long term. So. To me, I'm, I'm very excited about National ACO and what this indicates um, for you know companies that are making doctors and patients happy um, to to uh, to go forward uh, and to get additional funding. Um, hey, thanks, Craig. Um, you know, I just wanted to throw it back at you um, as as the moderator host here. You, you have seen a lot. I mean, you're, you're out there in the marketplace and you're, you're kind of, you know, uh, involved in conversations with, you know, all sorts of different organizations in this space. Um, you know, based on what you've seen, what are the questions that you would think would be most important to answer 
about um, why uh, growth of an organization such as ours does require and and would benefit from a, you know um, proper and adequate you know funding and also what you would understand is uh, the compelling reason why um, that investment would be a great idea at this time. Thanks, Dr. Berger. I'm happy to give that a shot. I think one way to frame it would be to look at what's happening today as the lump sum or the aggregate lessons learned over several decades of trying to tame the inflation base in the healthcare industry, whether it be hospital, physician, or otherwise ancillary clinical services. So perhaps the best way to look at it, and the way I choose to see it, having published numerous articles on ACOWatch.com on the subject of this emerging accountable care industry, is simply to track the uh, waxing and waning of the political will, if you will, (laughs) to put our arms around this volume-driven, do-more-to-earn-more ecosystem that has grown castles of or cathedrals of medicine. Very expensive, often inaccessible, and certainly out of the reach of anyone who doesn't have decent health insurance or Medicare Advantage or Medicare plus a supplement because the financial exposure of the patient is 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 just very troubling and is the byproduct of now decades of serial cost shifting. So why I think this national ACO venture is exciting is it is on the heels of now five years of a successful operating experience. Meanwhile, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has been tweaking, if you will, the rules under which these entities operate, launching under the Affordable Care Act back in 2010, first year 2012. So here we are at that point where the best and brightest minds in the regulatory space at CMS, working with massive provider input, both physicians, hospitals, and others who are delivering services in this uh, alternative model well, or emerging alternative ecosystem, population-based, value, outcomes-oriented, have reflected these rules. And uh, the national ACO, being one of a 44-member cohort in this next-generation ACO model, is going to have amazing advantages. Some of those key advantages are reflected as benefit enhancement tools, and they include a telehealth expansion waiver, a post-discharge home visit waiver, and the three-day skill nursing facility waiver, with which individually or collectively will empower physicians to more prudently utilize healthcare resources for their patient population. So the answer to your question is uh, National ACO. I think it's uh, the right model at the right time. Yeah, I'm more than happy to. I mean, I think I think the fact that you guys uh, have uh, you know a model that works. You're one of what there are 45 approved next generation ACOs um, that, and only what two of which are directed towards independent physicians. Most of them, like in New York, I know you have Northwell has their own ACO, and, and a lot of these ACOs are system based. Um, so it's not for the independent physician. Now, back in the 90s. There was another type of PPM than the one we were discussing that 
I, I was, uh, my first company got bought by, uh, and that was a physician practice management company. And there we were consolidating physician practices in a way that's not that dissimilar to, to the ACO model. In, and we were starting to manage risk and things like that. And so I think since, and, th- and that was a, an amazing movement for physician-centered uh, medicine. Um, I don't think since that time we've seen a greater opportunity for physicians to take control of their practice and to really redefine medicine. You guys are you guys are hitting the triple aim. I mean, now granted, I am uh, partisan, right? I, I am very much in favor of patient and physician solutions. But at the end of the day, what we really want is uh, better outcomes for the patients. You know, all of us are patients at some point, and we all want to be treated better. We all want to have better managed diabetes or whatever it is that we're going through now or we will be going through at some point. And as providers, we want to just take better care of patients in a simpler way that doesn't, you know, drive us crazy uh, and you don't get paid $17 to save somebody's life, Um, which... As I know, all of you ED physicians are out there listening know what that's like. Um, or nothing, as is the case in 20% of the time. So, you, know, you just want to be appreciated and be able to just do your job. And then from the payer's perspective, they've got a problem, too. And I, and I, and I love the way that, that ACO solves that and says, hey, let's just incentivize us to make those costs go down while keeping patients happy. Um, so to me, if you can, if you want to invest in the future of medicine, um, there are so many opportunities out there. I mean, obviously, you know, billions of dollars have been invested in uh, next generation tools for uh, healthcare. Um, but the digital medicine plays are, are fantastic. You know, so if, if you have a device, you know, or an app that can produce the likelihood that you're going to have autoimmune triggers um, just by analyzing everything. That's great. And that's a, that's a tool, and it should go into the physician's uh, and the patient's uh, toolbox of things to keep themselves healthy. But this isn't just the toolbox. This is the garage, right? This is um, you're not even just the garage. It's a whole network of garages, right? It's, it's how to make physician workflow and physician practices, how to incentivize them to adopt all of these great new ideas and to work with these, uh, these innovations uh, that, are, that are changing medicine, which actually brings us to a point that I really wanted to talk to Dr. Foxman about. So, Alex, I, I don't know if you're, if you're there, if your audio is, is working, but and Dr. Berger, you can answer this too if, if you like, but I want to hear about some of the things that you're doing with patients that, and, and your populations that you think are really effective in reducing the cost of care. Because that's what well, I'm really excited about. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's not, an, it's not a, uh, a uh, simple answer. Uh, everyone does different things. I think one of the most powerful tools that I've received thus far is information. Uh, because in the MSSP, MSSP program and now the Next Generation ACO model, we receive so much information through the form of claims data, through interfaces uh, that... Um, that uh, connect with our EHRs and our laboratory systems and so forth, it allows us to now look at not just the patient in front of us, but all the patients in our uh, ACO. It allows us to make decisions based on uh, uh, analytical tools and predictive modeling that we never, ever had before. So that is probably the the first and most important thing that that I think has helped my practice and and our ACO uh, be successful is being able to, to utilize these tools. But secondly, 
is we always try to think uh, outside of the box. We try to be innovative. Uh, for example, we've implemented several very novel types of uh, programs uh, within our ACO. We're, we're implementing a, a program called Call Me First 24-7, an opportunity for our patients to have their medical information available to them regardless of where they are in the healthcare system. We have a mobile app technology, which is similar to a, shall we say, Uber for doctors that allows us to schedule and provide uh, real-time medical home visits to patients who are the high-risk medically homebound patients in the uh, Medicare program. So all of these things are very important. We have uh, wearable tools. But again, all of this gravitates back to the need for capital because we could be very innovative. We could have lots of great ideas, but we need to have that capital to, to uh, subsidize the infrastructure to be able to make our program work. And that's why I'm so excited about all the different opportunities for smaller ACOs such as ours to, to raise capital, one of which being uh, working with MedStarter uh, uh, currently. No, that's that's uh, some exciting stuff. So, so how does this? Uh, are you guys using? I know this might be completely off topic, but are you guys using the chronic care management codes, or or you, but just because it's a a bundled payment type uh, approach where you're reducing the cost, you're just doing the same things, but then you get paid based upon how much you reduce the cost of care. I mean, I think you're probably using similar methods, right? We. We have trained our, our physicians and we do have programs in place, including the chronic care management program to help us better communicate with our uh, beneficiaries when they're not seeing the, the doctor. And in fact, we found that, that uh, we have a significant reduction in hospitalizations, uh, rehospitalizations and nursing home utilization with patients that are currently in the chronic care management program versus not. So not only is there a, a uh, so to speak, return on investment for the physicians because every dollar that we spend in the program is a, is a cost, but we also have seen market improvements in, in the, the overall uh, outcomes of the patients at lower cost and uh, higher uh, quality measures. Right. And, and a lot of things, a lot of the need for capital seems to come from, from my understanding, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is from the timing of things, right? Because you essentially have one payer for, for all of this, and then they have to do all the math and do all the analysis. There's a pretty huge lag between when you deliver the care and when you start to see the incentive payments. That's right. I mean, is it, what is it like? Absolutely. And, that, and that's the, the, the trouble uh, with the program, at least the MSSP program, is that by the time you know if you've achieved shared savings for a particular year, you're now about eight months, seven, eight months within the next participation year. So there is a cash flow issue that occurs uh, within the MSSP. Now, uh, CMS and, and Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation have put in very novel, interesting types of programs in the next generation ACO model including the population-based payment program that helps smooth out uh, the potential for, for revenue. And, and that's very exciting. And that's something that's not only currently available within uh, the next-gen program, but, but possibly maybe rolled out elsewhere in the future. But, but there are new innovations in, in terms of uh, payment and, and reimbursement uh, to try to, uh, to smooth out the cash flow, but it's not there yet to where it could really make uh, current MSSP, the next-gen, excited to uh, uh, to receive uh, capital in in the program year so so for for our listeners uh, and for me uh, who don't know the difference between the uh, pioneer and the next gen and the population based payment programs can you, can you give us sort of a, a quick rundown of, of what you were doing and how it's going to change or how it is changing with the next gen program 
Right. Well, the, the next, gen, next generation ACO model is, is a great uh, it's a great name because it is the next generation in our transition from volume-based care to value-based care. And it brings in a lot of uh, Medicare and CMMI, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, learned a lot from the past. And they're using all of these different issues, concerns, and comments from MSSPs to build a better program. And we believe that the next-gen ACO model is the next iteration of all of these benefits and enhancements that truly will, I think, continue to push us to revolutionize healthcare in the United States. Right, but how does it work? I mean, I, I'm sorry to be annoying with my question, but... Well, but, yeah. but no, no, no. I, I, I would love to the, just tell you, I think, I think there's only about uh, 30 to 60 seconds left, uh, but essentially the way, the way it works in, in a very short amount of time, the population-based payment program, is that we're able to go out and directly contract with third parties in, uh, in healthcare, hospitals, nursing home, home health, uh, uh, hospice, laboratories, we're able to, to uh, negotiate a discount fee schedule, and after that negotiation is closed, that discount comes directly back to the ACO to further align our incentives and opportunities between us and the population-based payments uh, payer. So that's very exciting. And there you have it. That will be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank our co-hosts, Dr. Andre Berger, Chief Executive Officer, and Dr. Alex Foxman, President and Chief Medical Officer for National ACO, as well as Alex Fair, CEO of MedStarter, for their time and insights today. Do follow National ACO via at NACOMSO on Twitter and on the web via www.nacomso.com. And for more information, on the National ACO crowdfunding effort, go to medstarter.com forward slash NACO. Until we meet again on This Week in Accountable Care for Drs. Berger and Foxman, this is Greg Masters, your co-host, saying bye now. Love is all you need.